Where did they come from? How did they begin? The Comics in Motion Network presents Classic Comics with Matthew B. Lord. Explore the golden age of comics. Learn where some of your favorite characters got their start. Find out their origins. And perhaps you'll find some characters you've never heard of. Or comics that you've never seen. Newspaper strips like Terry and the Pirates or the Golden Age Daredevil. Don't be surprised to find something from the Silver Age and important historical moments in the history of comics. Only on the Comics and Motion Network. Classic comics with Matthew B. Void. Find it where your favorite podcasts find you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, trees and non-binaries, to a very special episode of the Comics in Motion broadcast, brought to you by a very special subdivision, the uh, the Fantastic Universes Department here within Comics in Motion. Myself, Adam Ray, the is a tinkerer, and uh, Geekipedia extraordinaire Steve Ray, my loving father, <laughs> have dreamt a little dream. We have gone to faraway places and shared in the collective of conscious of Neil Gaiman's greatest work, as it has finally been translated from classic pulp 1990s comics to award-winning, or soon-to-be-award-winning, in my opinion, Netflix digital broadcast. As a long-standing fan of the original comics, I was fed them in utero, as it were, as well as reading them. <laughs> I don't know, I was, and you can back that up in a minute, Father. Basically, um, it's true, yes. Uh, into just reading them throughout my own experiences, my own curiosities. This set of stories has always been very personal to me. It's informed my worldviews and it's informed my thoughts as a writer and as a creator. So seeing it handled for the masses has been a very nice and rewarding and fulfilling experience. But I could I could go on, but there are in fact two voices in the show. However, I feel like he has a lot of the ways in which he will agree with me. But uh, yeah, yes. my father, Steve Ray, what do you have to say about all this? Um, everything you just said, that was almost a mic drop moment. Um, you could actually talk about this. I know you love these stories and yes, um, you did hear many of them, uh, in the womb because mother and I, this is one of the few comics we read together and love. So yes, uh, been a part of your entire life, but I'm glad that you, as a storyteller, as a writer, you can see that there have been changes and hopefully agree with most of them, but we'll discuss that as the evening progresses, I'm sure. Indeed, we have a lot of things to talk about before we round out our night with the sleep, but I suppose we need to talk about the actual origins of the Sandman story way back when Neil Gaiman was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young writer under the tutelage of the Rasputin lookalike Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> No, no, Alan Moore's gone on like local news and said that his uh, occupations were writer and Rasputin impersonator. So that's his own title. That's his own moniker. <laughs> but uh, yes, um, I'm not as familiar about this in itself. I personally hold the belief that uh, I'm much more inclined to remember that I have something as to where it came from. So Father Dearest, what can you tell us about the origins of where the Sandman story came from? Well, Originally, um, Neil Gaiman, according to myth and legend, wanted to write a Phantom Stranger series, but um, DC said, well, Phantom Stranger is a bit of a more of a participant than an actual someone who progresses the narrative in his stories. So can you do something else? And then Neil said, well, what about 
the Sandman, talking about Jack Kirby's Silver Age, Garrett Sanford, and um, Hector Hall's Sandman. But then editor Karen Berger, before DC launched Vertigo, when this was just another mature title to join Swamp Thing and uh, Animal Man, um, she said, well, okay, do Sandman, but make it your own Sandman. And that's when the fireworks started, because Neil Gaiman said, okay, I'll make my own Sandman, but what if I cleverly weave in the Golden and Silver Age Sandman as well? Um, throw in a bit of Destiny, a character from DC from many years beforehand. Um, the hosts of all the various horror comics that DC published over the decades and do my own thing. Throw in a bit of Alan Moore's Cain and Abel from that mix. Um, make Matthew Cable the human original husband of Abby Cable and Swamp Thing's friend stroke enemy stroke uh, protagonist and make him a raven. And the rest, as they say, is history. And what a grand history it led to, I would say. The I wasn't aware that it had such a weird patchwork patchwork sort of origins and history. I'd say it was um, almost dreamt up of that of composite pieces. It was very interesting, very there. powerful. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the truth. I'd say it's yeah. um, it was brought together by a lot of das- disparate pieces that made a a whole greater than the sum of its parts. As it were, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, with Neil Gaiman's power of research, his in-depth, bottomless knowledge of mythology and history, to then throw in real events like encephalitis lethargica, the sleepy sickness, which is a thing that actually happened, an actual pandemic that occurred in 1916 that lasted decades where people either didn't sleep or slept forever or woke up every couple of years and said, well, what, what could cause that? Well, the Lord of Dreams being locked away in a dungeon for 100 years or 70 odd years in the original comics. One of the very interesting, very niche sort of differences that uh, we'll discuss a little bit in further, because as with all adaptations, you can never get anything just right. It has to be some sort of variations to it. But out of some of the adaptations I've seen, this has been very well lovingly handled and respected. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Neil's the man in charge of the show. Yeah. And that's why i mean even though there are subtle changes nuances like said things that work in comics won't necessarily work on tv or in film but the changes i think i've made are have updated and like neil said he isn't a 28 year old guy writing this anymore this isn't his second uh, set of comics he's ever written this is the work now of a man in his 60s who's matured who's grown and he wanted to make the work grow with him so for new readers it's a brand new story and for old readers we can revisit something that feels like home but with brand new sparkly decorations that make home feel new and exciting and surprises even for us old hats and we have been pleasantly surprised but with his own handling and careful attention on it i can count on him to have made sure that the project was still good because uh yeah. we can count on neil damon to have had a a sort of hands-on approach when it comes to TV in the past, at least my um, my own memory talks back to his two excellent episodes of Doctor Who. Well, some yeah. of the most more cerebral and fantastical Absolutely. episodes, as it were, and bringing some real good character depths and attention to it. But yeah, he's been able to put a lot of his own emphasis and his own presence onto the tele- onto the these adaptations. Some more literally than others, but we'll talk about episode eleven right at the end, I imagine. Yes. <laughs> That one made me so happy. And the fact that we sort of knew it was coming because it leaked, 
but I was expecting it around Christmas. I wasn't expecting it a month after the I original batch of episodes. Think, I think they brought it forward because it leaked, but that's yeah. my own opinion. Yeah, it could be. Maybe we'll find out one day. Maybe. But in the meantime, we're grateful to have seen oh, yes. what we have. And the opening salvo of the original Sandman story has been adapted, as it were. The, um, the Preludes of Nocturnes and Doll's House sort of story arcs have been handled perfectly with their own little takes and little drips and drabs into side media here and there and the differences are minimal but glaring when you think about it because i think it's mainly just the differences in timing because it's not necessarily the 80s anymore it's now which is much more uh relevant i would say yeah and even though having reread the entire 76 issue arc and follow-ups uh twice this year for podcasts it's material that's aged beautifully well. And the audios, which are virtual exact copies of the comic series, um, still have it set in, in 89, 90, 91 as the series progresses. But this is a story that happened in real time in the comics. A year was a year, two years was two years. And thus we saw the growth of characters, which we'll hopefully meet should Netflix decide to make season two, three, four, five, six, whatever. But the fact that we also got two dream country episodes thrown in in that final episode just made this old fan very happy very much so the um the difference we're talking about here is that naturally the original comics and other adaptations have been set in the 80s whereas Mm. this adaptation has been set now but they've been able to make very interesting little tweaks and changes to it namely how they handle uh one of my favorite characters in the whole canon uh hobgadling but we'll get to him uh in due time um there's a segment that I'm going to come up to towards the end of the show that has just occurred to me, and hopefully I remember it by then. But uh, the differences in timing just makes for a lot of uh, interesting story opportunities. What do you um, what do you imagine about how they've handled that? Well, hopefully that gains a spoiler territory for people who are still just starting to read the comics and or waiting for the series. We know that Hobbs important. We know that dream is changing dream is maturing dream is learning that they work for the mortals and not the other way around and the fact that because he was 30 odd years late for the last meeting and still turned up does prove hobbs point that they are friends they don't just meet as a random experiment as to what will happen with a human who decides he doesn't want to die they have become friends and we will see more of that should season of mists be adapted and we'll definitely see more of that if we get all the way to the to the kindly ones and to the wake and see that um, Hob and Dream do have an ongoing relationship. But the fact that he turns up in 2022, 30 odd years late, adds more poignancy, more power to that message of friendship because Hob waited. Hob rebuilt a new pub which is slightly different to the comics where even though it burned down a couple of times and they had to rebuild it, it was the same pub in the same location for all that amount of time. So I just think it added a bit more believability and more weight to the fact that Dream did go back because they were friends. And that's so poignantly characterised in that final moment of that final episode. And honestly, that standalone episode, episode six, where it's Mm. the beginning half, him walking through the park with death into him and his uh, centuries of relationship with Hobgadling, which in my experience, if I remember rightly, is developed in a greater bit of detail in the television show as opposed to the 
the comics because we get those scenes sure in the comics but we get a lot of it told as like side by side stills of or at least i remember it dream with hob with the clothes changing and the decor changing and then we get the stuff unpacked but seeing it as an ongoing narrative in the tv shows was very satisfying thing to see for me it was very well adapted it was yeah. very, to see the different fashions the different clothing and uh the fact that this stream of 2022 doesn't have a massive um the cure stroke <laughs> boomtown rat stroke um crazy hairstyle he's a lot more modern but um the bones like you said the actual heart the beating heart of the stories is intact even with the updates and the changes and that's what made this adaptation in my opinion at least a huge success i agree with that completely it was handled with a lot of heart and care especially with regards to keeping everything so sincere to the adaptation yeah. but also talking about some of the new takes and the new spins now they've we've talked a bit about how they've done that change in time just to make it seem more now and more relevant to a certain current viewership i know yeah. that when um zack snyder was uh approached to adapt watchmen he was given the option to set it in a more contemporary time but he thought no the story is too entrenched in the Absolutely. 1980s and cold war it wouldn't make sense in any other time period mm -hmm. so he kept it as an 80s pulp noir movie which makes which perfect for that but it's been fortunate that this time there's there's been a real sense that jumping forwards to now so when our viewers are is still natural and still somehow fits the story but there's been a lot of other new changes and new tweaks to it other than the abundance of modern-ish technology that we see the characters and the human characters specifically using we also see certain very well appreciated and well handled changes in casting handled and i know that you've gone on soapboxes to defend some of these choices but Absolutely. the characterizations of the new takes on certain characterizations of Lucian into Lucienne has been mm -hmm. very well handled, but ultimately that makes little difference. All that we can ever really Absolutely. count on is uh, Lucien Lucienne being a diligent and caring intellectual at Dream's side. I think a good example of a similar casting choice that has just still, still been uh, spoken dividends. Um, what's the name of the actor who played Jim Gordon in The Batman? Oh, um, Jeffrey Wright. Excellent, excellent casting. Because yeah. all that Jim Gordon ever needed to be was just a diligent cop at the side Good of Batman. Cop. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're getting a lot of that here. But I love the narratives that you told me about where they went through hundreds, if not thousands, of auditions to find the perfect death. And yet one very fabulous individual just walked into the part of Desire. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's had like over 1,500 auditions for death. And no one could deliver that one line um the most oh i can't remember exactly but anthropomorphic personification this on any or any other plane no one can deliver that line the way that uh kirby hal baptiste handled it and again if i get to the end of my days that would be a death i would welcome with open arms and i'd go willingly even though i've decided just like hob that i'm not going to and that's why i stopped aging at 35. um but um <laughs> <laughs> you you don't have the benefit of being able to see my father, dear viewers. A lot of um, his media work is all audio or written based, but I can assure you as someone who's, I've known him all my life by default, and he's only starting to go white now at the age of uh, 51. 52. 
52, yes. Game on 53, yes. So, yeah, just like when I read this, I thought, nah, it's Mugs game. I'm not doing yeah. it. That's what I tell, sort of certainly tell my coworkers. Only people only death to people only die to fit in. Yeah, and Mum's done the same because she again um, stopped aging at thirty-five. Yes, you both do look good for people in your fifties. In yes. any case, um, that the same at the same vein, we got a sincere, character-driven, heartfelt, but very natural performance in death, and yet we get Desire yes. who. Oh, wow. It's just peak fabulous, but peak sinister, which is all you'd ever want from Desire as a concept, yeah. but also as the character from the original story. And that came from a tweet. Um, yeah. Hey, Neil, have you cast Desire yet? Because Hello. look no further. Uh, Desire was um, perfect casting. Absolutely wonderful. The right level of drop dead gorgeous, absolutely fabulous and blood curdling, terrifying. Um, I couldn't ask for more from a Desire. And that's exactly what you want. I'm very eager to see the rest of the siblings adapted if and when we I get more wait. of this show. Because um, in like in terms of like grand casting mode, all the all like, the only great casting choice I know of right now is that when we get the second of um, Denise Villeneuve's Dune movies, mm. I know that Christopher Walken's The Padishaw Emperor. Oh wow, perfect! Wow, I know, right? <laughs> so, wow. did you not hear that? No. That's so news. Yeah. so that in, that is all that's encapsulating my brain for sort of like peak nerd casting. So yeah. whoever they've got to be Delirium Destiny and the lost the lost sibling, mm-hmm. uh, I'm very excited because so far they've handled it all very well. But then again, you're right in saying that they all need to appear in the within episode one of season two if it's coming because that's when their family dinner is. Well, that's if they don't do Tales in the Sand Nada story, which was originally published as a as a prelude to to Doll's House, but I think they do need to adapt because we do need to know Lana's story before uh, Dream's next uh, <clears throat> quest. No spoilers here, sorry. Um, and also, if they just don't decide to do Midsummer Night's Dream and somehow do a version of Facade, the last two stories of Doll's House, but I, I don't know because those are going to be tricky, especially as Neil, as he did with the TV show now distance himself from DC continuity. The way he handled the tribute to the Sandman by having Jed be the Sandman. That would be And the way that he created a brand new character in Galt to be like a synthesis of Brute and Glob without baffling viewers. Because one thing that comics fans have moaned about is, oh, he's changed too much. He's taken all the DC characters out. I'm sorry, that was a wise move because not everyone's been reading DC comics for close to 50 years like I have. And even you, who've been brainwashed by it. Yeah, probably appreciate the changes more. Yes, because uh, one of the big changes that takes it away from uh, DC con- uh, DC continuity is that we don't see John Constantine, we see Joanna Constantine. Yes. And again, to quote your take of just of them casting Jenna Coleman for the Hob Gadling episode, why would they want to recycle exactly. a really good actress for just a bit part? She ended up playing a future version of herself and still did a character that's so very clearly yeah. meant to be who it is, but is also still her own take on things, not trying to be Matt Ryan. Exactly. And I've talked to other people before, because when I first read Constantine, when um, Alan Moore created him in Swamp Thing, um, I always heard him speak in a Cockney, in a London accent. It's only years, probably closer to a decade later in the Hellblazer series where Jamie Delano said that uh, John's family came from Liverpool 
But if he's lived in London his, in his whole life, it would make sense for him to have a little bit of Langston. But as he's been done that way for the last 10 odd years on TV, and Matt Ryan's played him so brilliantly, I can live with it. As long as he's a Brit, was good, but it was not a Constantine film. He was already the American mm. Constantine, and that was a step too far, even though the film was decent. But um, oh, Jenna Coleman is just, she blew my mind. I knew she was a great actress. I loved her from Doctor Who and from stage stuff I've seen her do, even from a little bit part in Captain America. Um, yeah. She played the modern day Constantine perfectly and her ancestor, uh, who we're going to see again, as you know, if the show gets made. Oh, it was perfect. Like you said, why have two different characters when one actress can play herself and her ancestor perfectly? And as we all know, if even though it doesn't say uh, DC on the box, it's oh yeah, the D, the DC multiverse is a timey wibbly wobbly timey wimey mess. So this can make another just slight remix on things where the canon that we know that's still set in the eighties with still John Constantine and all of those good stuff that mm -hmm. happens in the comics, we're still seeing a very faithful adaptation that's still also its own new spin. Yeah, I think the comics. Earth 89 with Michael Keaton's Batman, and this is Earth 2022. Exactly. That's my canon. <laughs> I'll take that. I like, I like that a lot. But still, we can look at the well-handled and well-rounded adaptation and talk back to how differently things were, because uh, Jed's take on the Sandman being yeah. this like, grand and swashbuckling superhero is definitely what uh, we would expect it to be the, con uh, the continuation there. It's yeah something that would have drawn in someone of this cultural age and so, as opposed to someone from the 80s who was used to growing up with the pulp and the noir stuff that that Absolutely. otherwise would have been. But we still get the great iconography of it with the helm and the long trunk-like uh, spine deal. It's always just a strong visual, that's his symbol. Yes. But we can talk about all of the differences and how they've handled time and casting and rebranding and reimagining re of the characters, but we can also look very fondly about what's still the same. And yeah. uh, just the way that certain characters have been handled, they may as well have been what a, a turn of phrase you coined when you looked at Gary Oldman's Commissioner Gordon for the Batman Begins movies, someone who has peeled off of the comic and put onto the screen. Yeah. I think the best examples of this would probably be the grand dreams, Matthew the Raven, yeah. Corinthian, and yeah. um, Mervyn Pumpkinhead. Yes, Mark Hamill, yay! I'm so happy. Um, yeah, exactly the same, exactly. The, and even dream to an extent, even though you can't people, viewers, listeners out there who complain that, oh, why didn't dream have black eyes with stars in them? This cost show cost enough as it was. If you're gonna have an actor with green eyes, that are digitized out in every scene he's in stop it we did see it when he was in shadow when he became from cat to man when he escaped from the from the bubble we saw that when he was sitting on that chair and alex burgess walked up to him that was the dream of the comics that's enough for me when he looked in the pool before going on his quest to find the things that he'd summoned the three witches with we saw the comic book dream reflected back looking at him exactly as in the comics that's enough for me totally enough for me what's important is the story and the story in all its in all its intricacy is still there exactly the same and all its intricacy is shone really through because even as someone who loves these stories it's still been a good few years since i've read them mm. seeing all of the little 
plot threads start to trickle yes. through even this early on where i'm just like oh it's the thing with the, 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 yes. with the and then the with that and then all of those yeah. things it's all coming together from the beginning it was all set up so perfectly as though we're reading it out of destiny's enormous book Absolutely. and it's just so satisfying to have seen those important key building block moments just handled perfectly from the beginning that we can expect everything else to just be as strong if it continues yeah because i don't know if you remember reading the comics getting to the stage where rose comes to england and meets unity kincaid i thought unity kincaid where do i know that from where do i know that name from and of course she was mentioned as one of the people who fell asleep when dream was captured in issue one and that's neil gaiman's stamp neil gaiman lays seeds names names shows you little items that take up a panel or a page or two at most in one comic they'd end up having their own entire arc later on and you spotted it already you had that with unity kincaid in episode one becoming the focus with rose in the doll's house episodes and um oh that's the tip of the iceberg oh please lord let us get to the story of barbie and martin Tenbones. please 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 because just even that visual was just so strong yeah. but all of those all of those figures in that hotel are going to become so very important for those mm -hmm. of you who haven't necessarily read the comics all of them are just going to be much more important than you think because they all have the benefit of staying in or near fiddler's green but um also stephen fry's fiddler's green is far Perfect. better far better casting than i ever expected because like because like listeners um you know the meme of uh leonardo dicaprio jumping up with the drink going like oh pointing at the screen that's what i did it's yeah. like, oh, it's just so perfect. <laughs> but I think a slice of casting that was just so perfect but not expected was Gwendolyn Christie's Lucifer. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, because obviously we couldn't have Bowie. May you rest in peace. Um, a, a, a loss that I'm still crushed by. Because that was the original uh, model for Lucifer, that androgynous, beautiful, perfect angel that was cast down. But hey, if if no one's a gorgeous, beautiful angel, then that that person is Gwendolyn Christie. She's a gorgeous, beautiful angel and a huge talent, an amazing actor. And that battle scene, which I'm glad they changed from Corrin's on to Lucifer, because it added much more weight and much more power to the fact that Lucifer now wants revenge for being humiliated in front of all of hell. But um she can do more with a raised eyebrow or a grimace or a smirk than most actors can do with their entire body. She's just absolutely wonderful in that scene. And oh, please let me let us get to the season of mists and see Lucifer's revenge, which unlike most other comics, rather than being slap, bang, pow, fight, 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 was like, uh, this is what I'm going to do. What are you going to do with this? And oh, my God, I, can't, I hope I need to see that on TV. Whereas the quality of her, of Gwendolyn Christie's acting is still so strong that I can also see all of the things that foreshadow Lucifer becoming their own character and going yes. off to do their own oh, adventures. Yeah. There's oh, enough. Yeah. There's enough there where in that moment where we cut back towards the end of the series, where Lucifer's being like pitted to the post by all these other demons, it's literal sympathy for the devil, which is just such a hard thing oh, to pull off act, as an actor. So yes, amazing performances all around. I would say. 
And who did they that 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 actor that demon they cast to play Azazel looks just like they do in the comics. That was a superb piece of casting for Azazel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm quite glad they both they didn't um, cast anyone for Beelzebub, just like that little wizened human body on a giant fly head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. best not. Or yeah. something that the odd we might see on. it. Yeah, let's let's find out because obviously the 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 battle for oh no no no. Ooh, oh, almost nearly, dropped a spoiler there. Nearly, no. nearly. But um, that's something to look forward to. That is something Fingers still crossed. coming through the mists towards us as we drift on through the land of Nod. But in any case, right now we have just this little ingot of a perfect narrative with two side stories that are so incredibly relevant to the ongoing narrative just mm-hmm. tagged on at the end. The uh, the Dream of a Thousand Cats plus Calliope. Um, they were just very satisfying and putting that storybook sort of look on to Dream of the Thousands Cats just oh, really beautiful. helps that sort of storybook feel of it really resonate. I think it's very well handled. It's one of the best dark fairy tales I've ever seen committed to screen. The fact that it's oil painting on canvas and which is 2D animated afterwards is like with real uh, motion capture cat movements. Who thinks of that? Who decides to do stuff like that? It's wonderful. It's an, it's an immense effort on the, the filmmakers' parts. I'd seen technology like it used on a project called uh, Becoming Vincent, I think it's called. It's oh, a the biopic. Go. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've, I've, it's a biopic about um, the moments after Vincent Vego's passing. And it's handled with a lot of care and attention, but all of the, each frame is a Van Gogh style painting with the swirls and the twists, but you still get like real performances from the motion capture on uh, actors like Jerome Flynn of Game of Thrones fame. And it's just wonderfully well handled. So yeah, that care and attention to make something that was already very storybook feel more dreamlike in storybook was perfect. And of course we have to owe uh the creator himself coming back into it as the form of the dying Christ. Yes. fantastic so good to hear neil's voice um and i also think it was a stroke of genius to pair dream of a thousand cats with calliope where one is a great work of the imagination and the story and the second's a story of a writer who's lost his imagination who's got the worst writer's block ever and can't write a word and needs a muse to help him imagine again so i thought that that pairing the same way they paired uh, the sound of her wings and men of good fortune the hobgadling story is one episode as well brilliant reimaginings and an economic storytelling to break down what was essentially um 18 issues into 11 episodes perfectly very very evenly as well because by the time that the main arc had ended by episode five we got that wonderful palate cleanser in episode six into like that mini narrative about the doll's house and the stuff that will lead into the grand family dynamics. But it was all yes. very well handled, I would say, and very well paced. They, a, f- a friend of mine described it as uh, each episode sort of had two narratives running side by side, mm-hmm. almost. Um, I think the one that was most the most succinct to itself was uh, the diner episode. Mm-hmm where we barely saw anything cosmological. It was just David Thewlis's, like understatedly creepy performance as everything else just went to hell. Brilliant. But uh, yeah, the pacing for each episode in the whole series was 
wonderfully done where each episode felt succinct but it didn't feel like anything was out of place it's a very hard thing to do especially for a set of stories that dense absolutely it's just the pacing the slow burn the sudden surprises the amazing visuals the fantastic performances it's hard to fault anything in this show and it just bugs me when people are faulting it left right and center and the worst ones are where people saying, oh, it's changed too much from the comics. Um, this is, you know, so modern and the, the comics were nothing like this. I said, what bloody comics were you reading? Uh, because <laughs> the important parts, and especially characters like Hal, especially characters, um, you know, like Chantal and Zelda, are virtually exactly as they were in the comics. They are so, exactly the same. That weird yeah. sort of, like... Uh, quirk goth sort of look was yeah. all was like all the rage in the 80s and is now retro now so it, they've lost nothing absolutely and it just seems to me like some people have got funny memories or have they really read them at all that's my takeaway from that yeah absolutely yeah, they've there's always going to be detractors but mm-hmm. when you actually boil down and look at the project that's been made there's so much love, care, and attention. There's so much reference and clear passion and love for the original source material that it didn't derive or Absolutely. skew too far. There's enough there that the original narrative is still so clear, yeah. it's impossible to fake. It's wonderfully handled and so very difficult to have like handled so cleanly, but clearly Netflix know what they're doing. And with uh, Neil's consistent sort of uh, vigilance, they weren't yeah. going to go. They weren't going to necessarily go too far. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the two biggest changes, of course, is Brute and Glob into Galt, which I thought was a wonderful new creation, mm. um, because we have the Corinthian, who is a nightmare, who remains a nightmare. We have Fiddler's Green, who was a place who wanted to be a man, and they were just true to themselves, and, and they came back home as soon as Morpheus returned. But then we have got the one in the middle, who's Galt, who was created to be a nightmare and to terrify. Who just wanted to be a dream and protect Jed and take him away from his horrible real life into a wonderful dream world to to, to protect the child. Uh, and I thought that was wonderful. And of course, Rosemary, the driver who took John mm. D to the Ruby, she meets a horrible sticky end in the comics, which I know when we've done book clubs, when I've talked to people about that, that was something that they didn't like. And Neil, the 60 year old, said, Well, actually, does she need to? Do I need to shop people anymore? 24 um, seven's done enough for that. Let's give this woman a happy ending. But is it a happy ending? Is that necklace, which protects it from everything, actually going to be more of a curse than a gift? Then will we ever find out? Um, little changes like that just, that just add to the mythos and the world building. I embrace them. Um, yeah. That's what the story is about. Morpheus's story, you know, you've read it, is change or die. And this series is is doing that. It's not dying, it's changing, but for the right reasons. It's changing just enough to fit what's going on right now, but yeah. the spirit and yeah. the story that it seeks to tell is still there. And 100%. that's all it very neatly brings us to what I was thinking about right at the beginning of the show. Mm. Because in dreams, you always start in the middle of things. You know, there's never a beginning or an end, so well, let's end at the beginning. Um since they've made such an effort to very lightly tweak things to fit the current and the now, there's definitely elements of new stories that can be told in and amongst the endless and the cos and the grand cosmos of things in today's day and age. 
I think one that would be very interesting to think of is that I remember distinctly from the comics, um, England during the Black Death and despair was wandering the streets. I can see that very clearly being retold now with the pandemic. Well, a lot of it's changed because of the pandemic. A lot of the the um, way people have looked at dreams incarceration and being separate from his family and being separate from the world, um, it, it, it's, it's all there and it's highlighted by that experience we've had now that we didn't have in 89. So so many stories that can be told. And Neil, very excitingly, because you know what, you know me. <laughs> I'm the biggest nerd on earth. I've tracked down every scrap of interview uh, sound by I could leading up to the show and since it was released. And the fact that Neil said that, yes, should Netflix decide to adapt the whole thing, that he would be open to be writing new stories featuring Dream and the Endless, this series can go anywhere. But the prohibitive cost of making it is what's keeping Netflix up until now from saying, okay, let's do season two. But all I can say is people, if you haven't seen it, see it. If you've seen it already, see it again. I've seen it three times now. See wow. it, watch it, double thumbs up it. Go to the Netflix page saying what kind of programs you want to watch and say more Sandman, please. This series needs to continue because honestly, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, and, the, and we don't kid you when we say, dear listeners, that every show of support matters financially speaking sandman was one of the most ambitious and difficult things netflix has ever made and this is netflix we're talking about this these these are the people that invented uh online online video streaming because they wanted to kill blockbuster they they were tanked by making this this hit them harder than they ever expected but i also have the privilege of being on the front lines in in the in the world of people going out and getting comic books so i also see every day volumes and copies of sandman yeah. flying off of comic book store shelves because people are clamoring for this story they was just they looked at this bizarre show that charted on netflix and want to know where this story from the 80s came from there's something here that it has been readapted and reimagined at the right time perfectly so Anything that can keep that story going for the people that Absolutely. love the originals, as well as those who want to see something new and something undreamt of, this show needs to continue. Well said. Bravo. Um, yeah, I was in your shop on Saturday, and book one no, is there, no, gone. Nowhere to be seen. Completely gone. Nowhere to be seen. I've been recommending these new four book editions to everyone who will listen because it is the cheapest and easiest way to grab beautiful, well-made copies you can put on your shelf of the entire 76 issue run. And now that book five's said, it's, it's been, cover's been made, it's coming out in February to release um, most of what came after, people um, do it. Because if we don't get this show, please let us get it. Then you've got to resort to the comics um, for the whole story and to the audibles if you want to hear it in a different media. And the, yeah, that's finished. That should be out imminently, hopefully before Christmas. So yeah, like Adam said, if you love these stories, if you want more, do what you can. Yep. And we've unpacked the stories that has been adapted for Netflix to the best of our ability. But um, I feel like I've, yeah, but was there any points that you wanted to emphasize? Did, well, I wanted to ask, obviously, because again, I've, I've read this story Multiple dozens times. of times now. 
and every time I read it, I pick up something new, and I've, I found the same with the TV show. Um, just tell me what things made you stand up and cheer, what things made you go, oh, God, yeah, I remember that now. That was horrible. And which bits of casting? I mean, we haven't talked about Cain and Abel or Goldie mm. or Gregory and all that wonderful stuff as well. What, what, what are your big takeaways from the new adaptation? How very how very I am the night of you. Um, <laughs> uh, big takeaways, I would say. I would say that because the show is set now, the serial collectors convention. These, this is much more realistic. Yes, and much more scary this day and age because you go yeah. onto the dark web chat rooms and it is there. Yeah, that wasn't a thing in the eighties. It would have mm-hmm. had to have been a coordinated event, but that kind of thing where people who like to just like do that, it could happen today a lot more easy. So. That just reads a lot more creepy to me. And it was handled in a way in the comics where there was a lot of like drab lighting and a lot of like very closed and small panels to make it feel cramped and grimy. The way it was shown on the t- on TV, it was in broad daylight. It mm. was in a very unassuming looking hotel. The only thing that seemed sketchy was when um, Fiddler's Green was walking through the panel rooms to listening to all of the different conversations going on. That was the part that seemed like confining, cramped and skeevy, but the rest of it was so public facing. That felt so real and close to home to me because I'm a convention grinder as well. Yes. I go there with press. It feels very familiar. So seeing it on that level, ugh. it made it more terrifying, didn't it? Very much so. Because back in 8990, when this series started, I've been to a couple of comic marts. But it's only as an adult and because of what we do that the convention has become part of our everyday life, part of our work. And seeing, like you said, in broad daylight, these characters and what they were there for was just terrifying. But do you not think as well how ordinary Nimrod, Funland and the Good Doctor were portrayed by perfectly ordinary looking and sounding actors made them more terrifying as well? Because they could literally be someone next door. And I think it has to be exaggerated, but I have heard the statistics say that you'll walk past 10 murderers in your life or something like that. Something like that. It's probably, unfortunately, it's probably higher this mm. day and age. It's so hard, so hard to tell. But I think you summed it up best to talk again about uh, Matt Reeves' Batman movie. The unassuming, like, quirky, nerdy nature of the Riddler in that movie. Mm-hmm. I, I see that guy in the comic book store every day. Yeah. You don't know where the monsters are. Yeah. And that just made it seem so real and so close to home to me. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you said at the beginning of the show as well about the technology aspect of things where, again, Neil's breadcrumbs, where you see Judy in the diner making a phone call to someone called Rose. And that didn't stand out as much, but seeing Rose's face on the screen of a video phone and then seeing Rose later in the Doll's House episodes again was that masterful piece of breadcrumbing but brought into the here and now which is another reason why I do think that bringing this show into 2022 was a really smart move really smart it's so incredibly 
just well handled for some a story that could be otherwise so dense but putting in a modern take without just for the sake of it putting in a modern take in a way that actually enhances and brings up the story yeah absolutely completely and uh, finally seeing a live action Cain and Abel they're just so fun <laughs> um you probably you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this but in the comics, both Swamp Thing and Sandman, we never see Abel actually pop out from the grave light of the Living Dead style, do we? Um, I don't remember it being that way. I remember him saying, thank you for burying me in a shallow grave this time. But I don't remember actually that ever happening. But we see that quite a bit in the, the show. The closest right. we've had was actually much more recent. And that was in Joe Hill's um, Lock and Key Sandman. Crossover, crossover yeah. where um, Mary Locke goes to the dreaming and she hears a voice saying, let me out, let me out. And she goes to a grave where Abel's buried and she digs him out. And um, we don't actually see it until he climbs out afterwards, but um, he's being eaten by his pet rats while he's down there. <laughs> and that's the closest we've got. But... No, I think you're right. I think, again, it's in the comics, it's more implied and you make up the horror in your head. Mm. Whereas on TV, you have to do a bit of it. But you know, because you've seen it, that 24-7 was much less graphic in the TV show than it was in the comics. And it was still pretty graphic. And it was still pretty bloody. I mean, mum found that a difficult watch. But like you said, the death episode that followed it just fixed everything. Because it was... Because... Both episodes were so incredibly personal. They were so incredibly yeah. character-driven. They just felt like it was the best in times and the worst of times for any kind of person. So seeing those differences just makes us, the viewer, remember that life is good and bad. Yeah, totally. And that, that's dream story. And that's um, actually Dee's story too, isn't it? All he wanted was the truth and to hide the lies. And Dream is the master of dreams, but he's also the master of reality because that's where his playground is. Um, he manipulates reality, he manipulates stories. And that's just that lovely dynamic and dichotomy that we get to see throughout the whole season and throughout the whole hopefully never-ending arc of comics that we've had since 1989. These stories of such grand scope but such simple premise that you could tell any kind of story with them and thus you could tell stories about them forever and we've yeah every episode's a different tv show and that's a lovely thing i've heard from you fans saying every episode's different i mean this is a series yeah it's got ongoing narrative yeah but it's almost more like watching episodes of the twilight zone but mm. with a central character that isn't just the one telling the story, he's central to the story, even if he's not in every minute and every scene. And that's great. And the amount of people coming up to me saying, hey, I've just watched this new Sandman show. Apparently it's based on a comic. Is that true? I can't believe they make comics like this. Can you still get them? My work here is done. I'm a happy man. <laughs> and that's another slice of magic about them, is that even though they are... These stories must be pushing 50 years old as well. Oh, the characters. Yeah, I mean, if you, Cain and Abel uh, were in the House of Mysteries, House and Secrets in the 50s and 60s, and Lucien was a host of his own uh, horror comic, the Three Witches were the hosts in their own horror comic, 
Um, so yeah, this is going back decades and decades and decades. I mean, Morpheus and the Endless, apart from Destiny, who's been around longer, are from the 89 onwards. But yeah, some of these characters, obviously Garrett Sam from the Silver Age, from the late 50s and 60s. But um, what we didn't see in the TV show, the original Sandman, the Golden Age Sandman, was from the 40s. Um, Wesley Dodds, who's took on um, fighting crime with a handful of sand and wearing a gas mask because of that one person who threw around sand wearing a very strange gas mask carved from the skeleton of a dead god and who protected our dreams. So, yeah, Neil Gaiman tapped into every era of DC Comics for that comic, and it's been beautifully adapted for 2022. Which just shows that these kinds of stories are truly endless. Oh, nicely done. And with that, dear listeners, I think that is as strong as an endorsement that we can possibly give. Mm -hmm. uh, the show, The Sandman, all 11 episodes are available to stream right now on Netflix. Do it. Do watch them. Do watch them again. Tell your friends. Tell the randoms in the street. Tell the homeless who don't have access to the to Netflix because they'll be able to be able to stream it through their dreams. It tell is, your cats. Tell your cats. You <laughs> yes, they will. It's true. But um, just important stories need to be told and unlikely stories need to be told even more so. And... I think as comics lovers and future comics lovers, we're all the better for it. Wonderful. But until then, this is as strong an endorsement as we could ever possibly give us here, Adam Ray and Stephen Ray of Comics in Motion and also Fantastic Universes, representing many grand media platforms to bring you the finest nerd news that money does not need to buy. But in until such uh, time as we can come to you with another fine and shiny broadcast, Father dear, where can our dear listeners find you, your writings and your musings? Indeed. Well, um, talk to me first and foremost on Twitter, at Elstevo, about anything nerdy that you want to talk about. Sand and comics, uh, music, movies, wrestling, whatever you like. I'll talk about it because um, I love it. Uh, to read my work, just type Steve J. Ray or Fantastic Universes into your search engine of choice to read my news, reviews, features and interviews across Fantastic Universes, DC Comics News and Dark Knight News. And to hear this void, Void voice, even uh, just uh, click into Comics in Motion, DC Comics News for multitudes of podcasts. But Adam, endless wanderer through the multiverse, where can our listeners and viewers find more of your work? My work is scattered across the dreamscape, but it is all there for your listening and reading and viewing pleasure. For my written work, uh, Flavor Run DC Comics, you can look to Dark Knight News where I review multiple titles of the month. Uh, Batman Beyond is sadly coming to a tragic end, but uh, Calvin is in an excellent spot right now. Uh, as for my own true love, uh, PC and tabletop gaming, look to our pride and joy, fantasticuniverses.com, where I review the latest drops in card games, gacha gaming, as well as my own takes on excellent multi-genre speculative albums. Uh, I need to, I'm going to make myself finish that today, but uh, as of the release of this, do check out my review for the latest album by Muse. It's some of the finest music I think I've ever heard. Um, look to the Apotheosis Studios blog for my take on Dungeons and Dragons media. I know their name is somewhat solid, but my own work is without any moral compromise. And look to some former deck techs and news for the League of Legends card game on RunterraCCG.com. Now that I have uh, optimized myself in my new living space, you can find me on twitch.tv forward slash is it tinkerer streaming card games as many evenings as I have the energy for. And most importantly, in the sand-filled wake of your dreams. Have a lovely evening. <laughs>